Good to see you all here at our teaching service. Uh, we are in the book of James. You know, not many churches do what we do at the five o'clock service. Not many churches at all. Very few will spend the time that we will give over to a book like James or Galatians or the Sermon on the Mount, where week after week we return to the same letter or gospel or whatever it might be, book of the Bible, so that we can go through the Word of God as it was given to us. Sometimes, of course, at the five o'clock service, we'll do topical preaching like what happens after you die or the end times, but also we always make space so that we can properly go through the Scriptures as God-given. And I've already said, in your Christian life, it's not enough just to read Christian books or your Bible. It's important that we study the Word as it was given. And that's what we're doing here in the letter to James. And we're just going to spend as long as we need to. There's no hurry. Don't have to get it over with this month. Um, and there's something nice about being able to return to a text week after week and building on it. It's very different to other styles of preaching, of which I do and, and enjoy. But I think it's good that at least on Sunday at Kensington Temple, there's different emphasis from the 9 and 11 to the 2.30 and the 5 and then the revival meeting. Uh, it means that there's a balanced diet here. And we've been looking at the first chapter of the book of James and saying that it was written by Jesus' half-brother. It's not the Apostle James, but it's the James that we find in the book of Acts that was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he was Jesus' half-brother. Jesus had brothers, and uh, James was one of them. He got saved after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to James, and he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. You see him right there in charge in Acts chapter 15 of the um, Council of Jerusalem. And uh, even Peter submitted to James, you know. Uh, in Galatians, when men sent from James told Peter to stop fellowshipping with Gentile believers that weren't circumcised, he obeyed. And James is known for his Jewishness. He was the leader of the Jewish Christians. And uh, James is so Jewish, the book of James, because it reflects that. James never really needed to deal with the Gentiles. Uh, he spent his time and his life he was martyred eventually um, in Jerusalem, ministering to the Jews. And so he had this perspective of Jewishness that never really developed like Paul's uh, Christianity developed. That doesn't mean that what's written in James isn't the Word of God. Of course it is. But it's just interesting to note that James came from this perspective. I'm convinced that the book of James is the first book that was written in the New Testament. Uh, some people think it was Thessalonians, and I suppose we can argue about it all day. But certainly James was one of the earliest books to be writing because he is writing to the Jews that were scattered over Palestine after the persecution and uh, martyrdom of Stephen. So when you read the book of Acts, just after Stephen has been martyred, when Stephen was martyred, you will see that the Jews were scattered out, and it's those that he addresses as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So you can see how early this is. The book of James doesn't even mention Gentile believers. Why? 
because there weren't any Gentile believers when James wrote this to the scattered believing Jews at the time. That's how early this book is. And we've been uh, speaking about the trials, and we're coming now to look at looking at something that develops from these kinds of trials. We're going to look at the poor person and his trials and the rich person and his trials. So let's just read from the beginning again and familiar ourselves with chapter 1 from verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. But let endurance or patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not a man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Let not that man think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because of, as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation." For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. been reflecting over the last few weeks. Remember, if you ever miss a five o'clock teaching service, you can always go up onto our web and the media page, and um, you will find the, the, the studies of James there. You go back in the weeks. And I know there are many people that do join us live on the internet right now, and others watch this series during the week. But Reflecting on the first few Sundays of this series on James, I am amazed and increasingly amazed at how much James is a book of faith. I mean, James is talking about faith that is just, just a totally different level than where most of us, and I include myself in that, are at. Some people have accused the book of James as about being not about faith at all, but it's all about works. And they say, oh, Paul in Galatians is the faith man. Or Paul in the first eight chapters of Romans, he's talking about faith, faith, faith. And then James, he's talking about works, works, works. But it's not true. James is talking about a very high level of faith that you put into action. I mean, such a high level of faith that he would say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I mean, have you, do you fall into trials? I mean, I've taught on this in depth recently, but I just want to build this again. Have, do you fall into trials when some difficulty comes, some test? Do you go, yes, and start doing a jig and a dance and singing and praising the Lord? No, me neither. Me neither. But what faith it must take in God to be able to be in a position where when a trial comes, not something that you're suffering because of your own sin, God can fix that. But that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that the enemy or that life will throw at you. To have such faith to say, hey, anything that comes my way, in the end, I'm going to go through it 
become fitter, stronger. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to be uh, matured by it. And I'm going to be lacking nothing. I mean, to have that type of faith where literally when a difficulty comes, you go, praise God, bring it on. I mean, that's faith, isn't it? And we're sitting here thinking, well, not many of us feel that we have that faith. But James is speaking about that level of faith. And so it's encouraging, exciting, and extremely challenging the book of James. Because we as Christians are not facing the trials in this manner. We are not looking at the trials and saying, yes, come on. I'm not. But we can grow in those. What, what I'm, I'm not asking you all to start dancing and having a praise party yet. But what I'm thinking is, hey, if we can just get to the place where, all right, we might not yet consider it joy, but at least we can consider it, wait a second, this trial, this test, there's purpose here. God's in control. God's going to bring me through. This is going to make me strong. And I am going to be patient. And the same word, patient, means endurance. I'm going to be patient, going to endure, and I'm going to come through complete and lacking nothing. That's the beginning of the joyful mindset. And then maybe as we increase our testimonies, we'll get to that place because he tells us, consider it joy. So let's at least in these five o'clock series be on the journey of, of instead of running away from trials, thinking it's the worst thing that's ever come to us, to actually face them and say, I'm not afraid of you. The Bible says, you're just what I need. And grow in faith. And then God says that what you really need, and I spoke about this last week, what you really need when you face a trial is wisdom. What to do. Often when a trial comes, the first thing you do is panic, isn't it? We spoke about that last week. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to sort this out. I panic, 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 panic. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to react. I don't know if I should react. I don't know what, to, what, what am I going to do. And and. and, and the, the, the problem with trials is not knowing what to do. Because when you know what to do, often that helps it. What keeps you up at night trying to figure out how you're going to get out of debt? Worry. And worry and anxiety very often is because we don't know what to do. And we're trying to figure it out. You know, and the problem is whirring around your mind. It's two o'clock in the morning and you're as awake as you've ever been. And it's buzzing, 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 buzzing. Why? Because you're, you're facing this difficulty and you just don't know what to do, whether to do or not to do. But here, God gives us such a wonderful promise. He says, ask for wisdom. And it says, and God will give you generously. And he won't tell you off. He won't, say, he won't say you're unholy or why are you asking for it. So the one thing you know, whatever you're facing, you can ask God for wisdom. But don't ask God for wisdom without trusting that he'll give it to you. He says, you know, when you ask, believe. We spoke about how wisdom comes last week. We say sometimes you'll get a word of wisdom, sometimes an insight. Suddenly your understanding will happen or you'll know what to say or what not to say. Sometimes wisdom is as much about what you don't say, don't do, as it is about what you do say and do do. Isn't that right? Many of us have said stuff we wish he hadn't said, true? But ask for wisdom. But sometimes God doesn't drop that wisdom. You've got to get up in the morning or go to the meeting and you go, I've asked for wisdom but I haven't had anything. No insight, no flash of insight, no, I, I'm going in here, I've asked for wisdom, but I haven't yet received 
any. Don't doubt. Go into the meeting. It'll be there waiting for you. Don't doubt. Trust God. Trust him that he can take you through the trial of the test. It'll make you stronger, not weaker. And when you ask for wisdom, believe it will come in his way. It will come. Maybe you'll download it in prayer or maybe just step by step, he'll order your steps. Don't be double-minded because being double-minded or double-souled is the word, is one of the worst things you can be. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to be double-minded. To pray something through at night, put my head in the pillow in faith, and then wake up in the morning as if I have to start all over again. Do you know what I'm talking about? You think, yes, Lord, I trust you, I believe, I'm trusting your wisdom. And then the next day, and even during the day sometimes, you can, one moment you're like the man or woman of trust. Next woman, next, sorry, sorry, next moment you're the man or woman of panic. What is that? That's that double-minded has anybody ever been double-minded like I have? One moment you're in, one moment, one moment you're loving God. I trust you, Lord. I believe you. I've prayed it through. The next moment, why have you done this to me? It's all going wrong. Double-minded. Now, don't fear being double-minded. Just recognize it and become less double-minded and be- become more single-minded. On who? On God on trusting God. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Be single-minded. When the double mind comes, know it for what it is. I mean, I'm beginning to learn now when I'm double-minded. Ah, okay, I know what's going on here. I need to get single-minded again. And then God can put me through. But then having said he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways, you don't want to live life like a wave tossed this way and that. and Some people live like that. Some people are totally at the mercies of their circumstances. Their circumstances pick them up and throw them wherever they want. And, and they don't know what to do. They're, they're double-minded. They're unstable in everything. You know, they're unstable. They go off at any moment. Go off into panic. Go off into anger. Go off into despair. Go off into discouragement. Just anything can toss them and throw them. But you know, when we ask for wisdom, when we believe God, and we put our anchor down, an anchor down, and that anchor's in the Lord, we're just trusting in Him and His Word, and although the, the wind tries to toss us, we stay strong. It's the beginning of dealing with your trials. Until we get this into our lives, or begin to grow in this, trials will, will just be at the mercy of trials instead of the, instead of the mercy of God. But then we come into this next section, verse 9. That's where I really want to rest today in the teaching. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Exaltation, sorry. But the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Again, James begins to turn things on its head. This is why James is such a book of faith. Because the way that we naturally deal with the world is totally opposite to the way that we're meant to deal with the world through faith. That's why we need to look at the things which are unseen rather than the things which are seen, Paul says. Because the things that are seen are what? Well done. Temporary. The things which are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are 
Eternal, you've got it. But here we go again. The things which are seen seem so real. And sometimes the things which are unseen seem so unreal. But faith is the evidence of things unseen. So in order to access the things unseen, you must have what faith James is talking about, the faith. You must. You can't have the conviction and evidence of things unseen, of being real, unless you have faith. It's impossible. So that's why the doubting, double-minded person keeps sort of like one moment they're, they're grabbing the things unseen and going, these things are real. The next moment they're letting go and grabbing the scene and thinking this is seen world and thinking this is all there is. God wants to wean us off the seen world and nourish, nourish us by the unseen world so that we live by the realities of the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. And so here's a crazy statement unless you have faith. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. I'm talking today about the exaltation of the poor and the humiliation of the rich. Well, that sounds crazy. Let the lowly, and the word lowly, what does this word mean, this word lowly? Does it mean humble as in an attitude? No, it means somebody that is very poor, somebody at the lowest level of the, uh, of the social ladder, somebody with no physical resources, physically poor, socially poor, poor in the hierarchy of the earth. Poor, poor, poor. These are people with no resources, no money. That's what he's talking about. Not just an attitude. He's talking about a situation that the poor find themselves in. And um, he says, let the poor brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Well, is James now changing his subject to something totally different? Sorry. Is James now changing the subject to something else? This is one of the benefits of studying a letter or a book from beginning to end. Because what can happen is preachers can just jump in, can't they? where they want to jump in. So we, if, if I started and say, today we're going to speak about the poor, and we didn't go back and say, well, we've been studying James, we might think, ah, a new topic, poor people, rich people. Well, but it's not. James has been speaking about trials, facing adversity, how to face it, to ask for wisdom, all of these types of things. And now what is he doing? He's giving us a first illustration of how to do this. And who faces trials more than the poor? I mean, you think of the poor, and the poor can be a relative term, but I'm speaking about, you know, really the poor, all the way around the world. And some of them, every day they're facing trials, aren't they? Just to get enough food, just, just to get clothing, things that we may take for absolute granted. The poor people can't take for granted, they don't even have them. So if we're talking about how 
to fall into various trials, then doesn't it make sense that James deals with those that face more trials than anybody? In fact, if James, if you're talking about considering it all joy to face trials, why don't, I'd like to see you say that to some poor people I know. You could say that to him, couldn't you? Very well. Very well talking to the middle class about trials. Last week I spoke about, you know, the sort of like imagery of a middle class Christian living out in the countryside with a little nice thatched cottage and the rose garden and everybody's polite in the village and they you know, don't face any trials and, and they seem really nice and everything. And yet you bring that person into an inner city context. You put, you put them in a place where they've got noisy neighbors every night, where they don't have enough money. You put them in that situation and see how they cope. So we're not talking about middle class trials so much in that sense. James is saying, you know what? This works everywhere. And I'm not afraid to teach you this. Consider it all joy. Would you say that to the poor Christian in the slums in India, James? Yes. You see, this is where James is on fire in faith. This is why James, the book of James is just so incredibly focused on faith that James would say this to the poor person in the slum in Mumbai. A poor Christian, he'd say, yes, you should glory in your exaltation. And that word glory is actually the same word as count it all joy. So he's come back to the same word. In verse 2 he says, My brethren, count it all joy. And in verse 9 it says, Let the lowly brother, basically translate it, count it joy. Or to be joyful. He's using the same word. This is hardcore stuff. Because I don't know whether, number one, we've got the faith to face our own trials. But have you got the faith to go to somebody that's poor and say, Rejoice. This is, this, is, this is powerful. We're going to have to chew on James. It's strong meat, isn't it? The thing, it's strong meat. You don't get this normally in your, in your average charismatic church. Uh, so a preacher preaching on the exaltation of the poor in their poverty and the humiliation of the rich in their riches. I mean, it's it's the total opposite to what's being pumped out on Christian television. Preachers exalt in their cars and their suits and their aeroplanes and their riches. They exalt in it. And they say, be just like us. So what does this mean? The lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Well, it means this. It means that... They are rich in faith, as we'll read later about the poor. They're rich in faith. Why? Because they've got no choice but to believe God. And you know what? I know it sounds crazy. A lot of James does to a carnal mindset. But to just be in a position where all you've got is to trust God is a good place to be. It's a good place to be. Just to trust God. The best place we can be is in a position where we just trust God. It's the simplest place to be. 
receive the kingdom of God like a little child. What does a little child do? Just trusts his father or her father. Or, just trusts. We're so complex. And the more material possessions and things we have, the more complex we get. And the further away we get from simple, hardcore trusting of the Lord. And I think it's amazing because if God can provide for the poor, isn't that wonderful? I mean, if we're middle class, middle income, we can say thank you for your provision, but we all know, Lord, that's my salary that's bringing it home. There's a double-minded thing there. Thank you for my health, Lord. We all know that, you know, I'm on Bupa or something like that. And when I had that problem, my money got me into Bupa got me into that special hospital like that. I got everything done and I came out, thank you, Lord. Ah, but we all know it was Booper that got me the operation. You know what I'm saying? But these poor people, all they have is God. And you know what God's saying? I'm enough. I'm enough. Rejoice that all you have is me. Because God's perspective is not dominated by this short life on earth. God is saying, just trust me. I mean, look at, look at the picture. I know it's moving. Look at the picture of Lazarus and the rich man. I mean, on the earth, and you can look at that parable. It's a bit like this. On the earth, Lazarus had absolutely everything. Everything thing there was materially he had health wealth everything position finance he had everything and the poor man had absolutely nothing the only thing he had was the licks of wild dogs on his sores now you look at that from a natural perspective and yet, when they moved swiftly into eternity, it was the total of a way round, wasn't it? You see, this life, it's just the antechamber to eternal life. It's the waiting room. It's like standing in a waiting room at a train station. That's all this is. And whether you've got a lovely waiting room, first class, waiting room at the airport where you can have your newspapers and your toast or whether you're on like you know budget airline you have to pay extra just to stand <laughs> waiting for it it's not about it's about your destination let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation in other words we should say the, it's the poor that teach us the lesson the poor that teach, not the rich. There's very little you can learn from a rich Christian. Very little you can learn from a rich Christian. Why? Because the gospel's not for rich people. The gospel's not for, the gospel is not designed for rich people. Do you know that? I'm going to knock you out. The gospel is not designed for rich people. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and the brokenhearted. If you're a Christian and you're rich, then you need to humble yourself because um, how did you get in? 
How did you get in? It's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter into the kingdom. And that's not just talking about getting saved. It's talking about entering into all the kingdom perspectives. Not many rich were chosen, Paul says. Not, not many great. But God has chosen the poor, the base, the despised, the socially excluded. The gospel was designed for the poor. John the Baptist sent his disciples. Are you the one? Or should we expect one other? Go and tell John this. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. So the gospel was designed for the poor. And so in heaven we're going to find that right at the front of the queue for the rewards and the blessings are going to be the poor. The ones that we, we don't know, never seen, but all they had was God and they trusted God and God came through to them. Understand that if you're suffering, a suffering Christian, a, pov a poor Christian, that you are on God's A-list. You are God, God's A-list. And if you can get a heavenly perspective to the situation that you are facing, then you are bringing glory to God in a tremendous and powerful way. Now, I'm not saying that God wants you poor. I'm not saying that. And what we find is that those people that put their trust in the Lord, often God's provision and fatherly provision is often better than the provision of the world. But it's provision that God gives. He'll meet our needs, not our greeds. Do you remember Paul? He's saying all these super preachers, all these super apostles, oh, they've already arrived. They're already kings. Whereas I've suffered hunger, sleepless nights. I've had to sleep on the road. Seems to me that God has put us apostles, the true apostles, at the end of the line. That's very different to what we get on God TV, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's very different to the message that's sent out at prosperity conferences. Well, does that mean that God wants us all to sell our possessions and become poor? No. It doesn't say that. And James nowhere here talks about that. It's perspective and attitude and values. Later on in James, you'll see he's going to rebuke the church because when a rich person comes in, they're ushered to the front and given the best seat. Why? Well, because maybe they'll drop something big in the offering. That doesn't mean we don't give honor where honor's due. Do you hear what I'm saying? If an MP came and said an MP or someone from government said, we want to attend your service, we wouldn't just say, or oh, sit. We'd give them honor. Do you understand? But that's totally different to putting them there and hoping you're going to get provision from them. And so then Paul says this. Then he speaks to the rich. Sorry, not Paul. James speaks to the rich. And he says, but the rich should glory or rejoice in his humiliation. What does that mean? It means, this is why it's hard for rich people to be disciples. Very hard for them to be disciples. Why? Because God calls on them to rejoice in their humiliation. He's turned the tables. In the world system, 
It's the poverty people that are humbled and humiliated. And the rich people walk around with um, the recognition and the influence. And Paul is saying, you want to be a rich person in the kingdom of God? Well, you just be thankful you're here. You just be thankful you're saved if you're a rich person because it's not designed for you. You're in a, in a, you've been saved into a, a kingdom that's not designed for rich people. So what's your response? Thank God and humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and before others. And it says, the rich, the rich now the word there is full, plenty. Now, the problem with rich Christians is they don't need God for so much of their lives. They don't really need God for their health. They don't need God for their um, uh, provision. They don't need God for their um, self-confidence because they can walk into a hotel and demand respect. You say, you're being hard on the rich. It's about time some were. Because there's such a fear of the rich in the body of Christ. I, I, can, I can hardly think of a rich Christian that I've met that I've liked. And when they give, and often, when they want to help you with their money, there's strings attached. Or the rich Christian will often take the money and then they don't give it over to the Lord, but they, they'll give, but they'll give as if they're in business so they can get influence back. I've, I've known rich people give in order to gain influence in the Christian world. Give in order to sit at the tables of certain high, supposed ranking Christians. Give in order to do it. Using their wealth in the same way in the kingdom as they would in the world. When they should be walking in humiliation. Not, not the humiliation of the poor, but they should be saying, my God, I'm just pleased to be here. But that is so the reverse of the culture of the rich in the world, isn't it? And rich Christians. Rich Christians. And thank God for those that have humbled themselves that are rich Christians and that understand that the money that they were given was given to look after the poor, to fund the church, and not hold on to it. Why not hold on to it? Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. This is the big challenge to rich Christians, to understand as the poor person, the poor person yearns for deliverance. I mean, when you think of all the spirituals of the African slaves in America, they had nothing on earth but God. Nothing. I mean, nothing. They were treated worse than animals. But if you listen to the spirituals, it's all about what's going to come across the River Jordan. In other words, heaven. All they had was God on the earth and a hope for the future in the life. Thank God they thought this is the antechamber to eternal life because they had nothing on here. So they were like, can't wait till it's over. Can't wait to meet Jesus. Can't wait to cross into that land like the poor person at Lazarus' feet. But the rich person, the rich person, danger is that they've got it all here. That they're recognized where they go. That if ever there's a problem, they can throw money doctors at it. 
that they can carve out a wonderful life. They can go on holiday when they want. They can have a wonderful accommodation. I mean, they can really, really, I mean, they can, like the rich man, they can say, do you know what? I've got plenty. I can build a barn and just enjoy life. And the rich person in the kingdom of God, often they don't want to go and die. They've got too much laid up on earth to want to go to heaven. That's the danger. And so a rich person has to really get off their high horse and realize that it's the poor people that God values more than anybody. And you should just be thankful you're in the kingdom. You should just be glad you're here. Let's start from there because it's the poor people. It's the despised. It's the forsaken. It's the heartbroken. They're God's primary choice. You're just blessed to be in here and realize that you haven't got long. And don't make the mistake of, Lazarus, not that you'll go to hell or anything, but don't make the mistake of Lazarus of losing your eternal perspective and thinking somehow that what you're experiencing and the pleasures of materialism is just going to go on and on and on and on and on and on. It's not. No, you, you. doesn't say this to the poor person. The person knows how fragile they are. The poor person has, is, is wondering about their fragile situation, their fragile financial situation, their fragile accommodation, their fragile. They know how fragile they are. It's the rich people, it's the rich Christians that need to know how fragile they really are. As a flower of the field, he will pass away. If you're a rich Christian here today, this is for you. You're a flower, and you're going to fade before you realize it. Realize it, and you can become great in the kingdom of God still. Realize that all your possessions that you have, before you know it, you're not going to have. You can't take it with you and begin to use it in a servant, humble way for the kingdom of God. With no strings attached, or to work it as you would in business, to your own... uh, exaltation, but to use it as the Holy Spirit shows you and to think, you know, I tell you what, if if you knew that you were going to die in a week, what would money be? How would you use it? This is saying you're just a flower. Use the money for the kingdom of God while you still have it. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass it flowers, falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. So actually what we have here is two trials for two opposite different types of Christians, don't we? What a great way to move out from a general saying, considering it a general statement, considering it all trials, brethren, when you fall into tests, and then he goes to the two extremes. He goes to this person that's got nothing, And the person that's got everything, and he's saying, you've both got a test. And both tests, in my mind, are equally difficult to face. The test of trusting God every day because you've got nothing, and are nothing in the world's eyes, trusting it. And then trusting God because you've got everything, and you are somebody, and you have got these things. Both are powerful tests. Perhaps the
the rich test, the rich man's test, is perhaps harder. I don't know. We ought to think about that. And to take eternity's perspective and apply it today. That's what discipleship is. That's really what it is. That's what we struggle with, all of us, including myself. And should we say, well, am I poor or rich? Well, a lot of it's a mentality as well, isn't it? Because many of us are rich compared to other people. And so it's possible for somebody who might say, well, I'm not rich. Well, somewhere, well, you are, relatively speaking to some people. Do you have that rich mentality? Do you have that materialistic mentality? So these are general things. Blessed, verse 12, and on this we finish. Blessed is the man who endures tests. For when he is approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here's the test. What a way to start. Rich people and poor people. That poor people, according to the gospel and faith, are in a higher position of exaltation and respect and honor by the Lord than rich people who have to glory in the fact that they are not in as higher honor or special position as the poor people in the other countries that love the Lord that you could feed for five or six years and not even notice it. Wow. This is strong meat, isn't it? Don't you think? I'm not expecting you just to go and think, yeah, I agree with all that. I'm expecting you to chew on this. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the church? What is God saying? This, this type of faith and worldview is radical, extreme. It goes in the total opposite direction that not only the world is going in, but Western charismatic Christianity. In fact, it's a rebuke to Western charismatic Christianity that has already shown itself to be wanting in the face of God's judgment. What we need is people that follow James, rich and poor. That's what we need. People that will turn things around on their head, a counterculture, a culture that's defined by faith and love. It goes against the grain, not with the grain. It doesn't pander to people's selfish, self-absorption, but calls them to a higher life and calls them to understand that these few moments on earth are nothing compared to it, the eternal weight of glory that's to come and to live in that perspective. When we come back next week, we're going to look a little bit about temptation, how to deal with it, how it works, and how not to be deceived by it so that the tests that we face are not ones of our own doing, but they are the tests that we know are pure in the way that they're going to bring us through. Because I know, I know because I know me and therefore I know you, that some of the stuff we faced in our lives, we didn't have to go through, did we? It was sin, it was bad decisions, it was the flesh, that type of thing God doesn't want us to go through. And next week we're going to make sure that the trials we rejoice over are the right ones. And the sin that seeks to destroy us 
are not the things that are taking up our energies. Don't forget, Roberts is going to be here tonight. God bless you.